It is, oh dear. <laughs> Who, you're blaming your wife now. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, we got, a, we got a new soundboard from uh, Baptist Church in Red. Them, because, you know, they'll listen to this online. I don't know. Uh, we got to work out a little bit as we go. But it's been, uh, it was fun and stuff. chapter 3 and we're going to get there in a few minutes but let me just kind of prepare us for uh, what we're going to discuss uh, this morning so if this is your first time here um, or if you have missed a few sessions we have been going through uh, seven key important excuse me important doctrinal uh, beliefs that we have as our church and the grouping of churches that we belong to. So we are part of the AGC, which is the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. And uh, over the months leading up to this series, as we were studying through 1 John, it, it, God has just putting on my heart more and more just how important it is uh, that we look at what is core, what is essential, what things do we need to believe that are just central to our faith in other words, if we don't believe some of these things, we slide into some very dangerous theological error that can bring us away from actually who God is, and rather we start to serve a God that we have kind of created in our own minds. And so these are the seven kind of distinctives that make up uh, AGC churches. So if you, are, if you are in Canmore one Sunday and you show up in Trinity, that is one of our sister churches, same uh, association that we belong to. And so you can know that these seven things will identify what they believe. And this is the same of us. And, and so again, I'm not trying to say that we know everything, that our church or that our association, that we have theology all figured out and everybody else doesn't. Uh, that's not the point, and that's why there's actually only seven essential things. There's a lot of room to agree to disagree on other issues that are, that are just not essential. They're just not as important. Uh, yes, I think it is important that we read Scripture and, and study it, and we kind of come to conclusion on the things that we believe, uh, but we have to recognize that we're not perfect. We don't understand everything. And so we, we have to find uh, a balance of, of maintaining unity and peace with people who differ differently uh, than we do. But at the same time, these are the core. These are the things that we have to hold tightly because without these, uh, our, our doctrine and our understanding of who God is really starts to fall apart. So we started with the scriptures uh, and we looked at how the Bible is essential. It's without error. It is perfect. Uh, it's inspired of God, given to us in its original languages. So again, that means when we read it in English, that doesn't mean that we think there's all kinds of mistakes because it's been translated. We think it's correct. But what we have to realize is that as those things have been translated, there's subtle differences here and there. And sometimes we need to study into those differences and go back to original languages to try and understand them the way in which God presented them to us. But we looked at how we believe that Scripture is sufficient, meaning it's Scripture alone. Scripture plus nothing. We don't, 
we don't have modern day uh, apostles who declare new revelation about God or messages from God to others in r- relation to salvation, in relation to what it means to be a Christian or how to live. We believe that the word of God has sufficiently done that for us. And so that's where we start. We looked at the overall theology of God and how there's three persons in one. And obviously I didn't try to explain the Trinity because that is a never-ending Uh, Like, I'm never going to be smart enough to do that. But we looked at how God has shown that that is who he is in Scripture. And so we don't want to serve our creation of God. We want to serve the God who has revealed himself in the word to us. So this is who he is. So if this is who he is, we want to be an ambassador for him, not a creation of him. And then last week, we looked at angels. And it seemed like this kind of surprising, why is there an essential statement about angels? But really, if we broke it down... It's, it's trying to help us understand where Satan came from and kind of the origin of evil and recognizing some of those things. And that brings us here to mankind, to the fall, to who we are as, as human beings, what the scriptures teach to us about us and our state. And I think this is a very essential one that we talk about because in today's world, there's just... there's both in in Christianity, but also in secular thinking, there's some things that are being taught, uh, and and even to our young children, right from, you know, grade school, that are being taught that we just don't believe are in accordance with the Word of God. If you boil it all down, as most people seem to believe outside of the church, most people seem to believe, and actually even within the church, and, and I'll talk about this difference a little bit in a moment here, but this is an important one, is most people have this belief that basically at the root of it, man is good. That unfortunately goes vastly against what scripture teaches us. And so if we start there and if we think, you know, basically I'm a good person, and when I make mistakes and when I do things wrong, that's not actually a, a, an indication of my heart. That's just, that's just an oops that happened. And, but basically, my heart is good. Well, the problem is, is if I think I'm good, then I'm never going to see that I need a Savior. And so if we read Scripture, and as we're going to do this morning, and see that actually, according to Jeremiah, and we'll talk about this again in a few moments, but our heart is filled with deception. Our heart is desperately evil, and we desperately need a Savior. And so this, this becomes a place that you, you can't, as a Christian, look at scripture, read scripture, and come to the conclusion that man is pretty good. If you read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, what you see is uh, God chooses Abraham and and his people, and and he's going to make a nation out of him. Uh, And then all through kind of the next few books of the Bible, you just see this, this rebellion where they serve God for a little while, and then they turn their backs on God. God has to bring either a judge or a prophet or somebody to come show them the error of their ways very seriously because they don't get subtleties, and and I, I would argue neither do we. And they need to be told, and so then they repent and they turn back towards God, and, and then their own selfish hearts turn them away from God. And then they come back to God and then they turn away from God. And it's over and over and over. And the only reason for that is because our hearts are desperately wicked. We want to serve ourselves more than we want to serve anybody or anything else at the very heart of it. Let's uh, 
Oh, did I forget? No, I put it on the screen, didn't I? Oh, no, no, not that, no, not that one. I think I actually did this. Yeah, there it is. Okay, I'm going to read this for you. This is we're going to it's three different screens because it's kind of a, a a large statement that needs some explanation. So, I'm going to read this uh from my notes and you can follow along on the screen and then I'm going to kind of unpack it a little bit and show you why uh we believe what we believe about the origin of man and about original sin and all those things. So, here's what it says. Human beings are created in the image of God. The first humans, Adam and Eve, were disobedient to the will of God, with the consequences that every aspect of their human nature became sinful and corrupt. Thus, being spiritually dead, they became subject to physical death and the power of Satan. The image of God is distorted in all humanity with the exception of Jesus, as we inherit a sinful nature at conception. Therefore, we are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his condemnation. There's one sentence right near the end of there that we're going to talk about uh, in a few moments, but it's this idea of we are sinners by nature and by choice. Because that's being attacked in, in evangelicalism today, uh, that belief. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time when we get there. But first, let's start at the beginning. So human beings are created in the image of God. Now, it's sad that we have to state this so plainly. But that means that every person, every single person who has ever been born has been created in the image of God. That means God loves them. God has created them unique. And, and while, and I'll explain this further, but while we have sinned and we've kind of marred that, that image barrenness, we still do bear his image in part. And that doesn't matter who they are or what they believe. God loves them desperately because he has created them. Now, this is where this balance that, that we in our association have had to try and, and create the statement and craft the statement because there's this belief all through the world right now that for you to love someone means you need to approve of everything that they do. And that just doesn't make any sense. We can love people, and those of you who are married, you know this to be true, is you are not the same as your spouse. In fact, sometimes you don't understand your spouse, even though you've been with them for years. And you think, I really would have expected they would have done this or said this, and there's some surprise there. We're, we're all different, and we don't in that moment go, no, I, I no longer love you because you made a different choice than me. But we also don't go, oh, that just means that you're right. I love you. There's, there's a disconnect there, and we need to understand that. Is we love people not because of what they do, how they act. We love people because God has created them, and God loves them, and God's called us to love them too. That's, that's it. That's that simple. So race, religion, sexual, sexual orientation, all of those things should matter nothing with how we love and seek to show them who Jesus is. Again, I'll, I'll get there, but we do believe that God has called us to live certain ways and there are consequences for certain things and he alone gets to determine what is right. And so we hold to those things, but we love people unconditionally because they are created in the image of God. 
And just in case you need scripture, Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me just really clar- uh, quickly clarify this. Is this doesn't mean we look like God. We're not talking about a physical image. What we're talking about is um, we have the capacity to love and to be kind to work through things from an intellectual capacity. Uh, we, we are created with all these abilities because this is who God is. So that's what it means to be created in his image. We can see people. We can love them unconditionally. We can care for them. We can minister to them. We can help them. We can aid them in all these ways because God has created us with his image. So we are his image bearers. In Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just giving you a couple things before we get to 3. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God, uh, as he's created everything, he then tells Adam and Eve, you are to care for and to steward the garden. And he tells them kind of, here's what your, what your role is going to be. And he kind of tells them, you can do basically anything you want except, right? And he gives them this one tree, right? You don't, don't eat of this. And there's a lot of speculation in uh, philosophical thought about just how long it took for Adam and Eve to sin and to eat the fruit of that tree. And you know what I think? I think that matters nothing. (laughs) Whether it's one day, a thousand years, it matters nothing. Man chose, mankind chose their way instead of God's. That's the important part. And I think so often we need to read Scripture with the lens that God is revealing to us what we need to know, not just all the things that we want to know. Sure, it would be of interest's sake to figure out how many days or whatever, but God knows that that is not the main point. That doesn't matter. So there in the garden, let's read chapter 3. We're going to read kind of a big section here, 1 to 19, just so that you have context and that you see this from scripture. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree, and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the offspring. Sorry, I will, between, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there's so much in that text that, that we could go over. You look and you see kind of Satan tempting Eve and saying that which she's going to say. The scripture teaches us later that Satan is a liar. That's what he does. And he says to them, you will not surely die. And actually what happens is not only are they physically going to die now, but now there's spiritual death as well. Not only did he lie, but he lied very exceedingly about that. We read about the consequences that happened, and we see uh, in, in uh, verse 15, actually the first prophecy of the Messiah going to come, showing us that none of this has caught God by surprise, but that God has planned, that God has purpose, and that God isn't reactionary, but that God is indeed proactive. What we see happening uh, is that death comes into the world, which the assumption is, or, or not the assumption, the, the counter of that then is we were not created to die. God created us to live forever with him. And so physical death becomes a consequence of sin. And, and we can kind of look at this and we can decide this seems unfair. That seems like a very excessive consequence uh, for this behavior. Parents, you ever had your kids say that? You give them a consequence once, and they're like, that's so unfair, that's way too far. Right? Like, of course it, we think that. Because even when we're the one doing wrong, somehow we play the victim card and think that we shouldn't be given the consequence that the one who put into place what should be, he, he gets to decide that. We don't. And so death comes into the world, but more than physical death is now this, this spiritual death. We were created in the image of God to be in fellowship, to be in direct communion with God, and some of that now is altered. And so as you can kind of continue to read, is Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're no longer allowed in there, and, and strife and difficulty and those things start to come. We call this idea this whole thing this the depravity of man is our own heart's desire for self rather than others again parents if you've ever had a child when they're very little you don't have to teach them how to do what's wrong they just innately know how to do that when you tell them not to do something it's like almost asking them to do it 
right? Like, this is just what happens. We actually have to train and equip. And that's not, that's not just true of our children, too. That's true of us now, isn't it? Is we have to train and equip ourselves to do what's right, to serve others, because innately what I want is what's best for me or what I think is best for me. And I have to fight that. I have to fight that, and we all have to fight that. And so our image, uh, this image bearer of, excuse me, us bearing God's image is still there, but it has been marred. And so in Genesis 9, verse 6, we read this. God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Is after the fall, after the flood, all of these things, God says this because he says, while it's marred and while it's somewhat broken here and, and distorted, is that image of God still remains within us. It hasn't been completely wiped out. We are still valued and cared for. And so God says, you have no right to take anyone's life because I have created them and I love them desperately. You have no right to take their life. And he says, as big a consequence as there can be, if you do this, it will be taken of you as well. So there's now both physical uh, and spiritual death. And, and so next week, we're going to look at redemption and salvation and how Jesus ultimately brings um, a, a chance at redemption for us that while we're spiritually dead, we can be made alive again. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I do want you to know there is hope because a lot of this sounds very depressing and disappointing and sad, and it is, but there is hope. Then we have in our statement, it says um, that we are subject to the power of Satan. And so we kind of discussed this last week a little bit, is that Satan is now on earth and, and he has a, a certain amount of authority in this. But we know that when Jesus came to the world, that he defeated Satan on the cross. That he no longer has any authority over us because we have been forgiven of our sin. And so in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, we read this. Now this comes from the context of Paul's talking to those who have already been redeemed. So those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. When he writes this, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul looks at it from this. Yes, you have been transformed and changed, but we all were this. We were all here. So what this should do for us as Christians, those of us who have committed to following Jesus and he has become uh, our Lord and Savior, is we need to recognize that that's not because of me, not because of my goodness, not because I'm awesome, but it's all because of God. And so everything's mercy and everything is grace. And so I could never or I should never have any kind of a complex where I am more valuable than anybody else. What this should do is it should bring me back to recognizing that that person over there that I have a really hard time loving because they just, they do all these immoral and awful things and we start to judge them and we start to put them on this, they're less than me. We should never do that because Paul says we were that. Praise God that those of us who have confessed Jesus as 
our Lord and Savior, we have been pulled out of that. But we haven't climbed out of that well. God has reached down and pulled us out. What a gracious, gracious thing that is. Paul says it this way in Romans 3 as well, and many of you kind of have probably memorized the Romans road over your life, these several verses of kind of the gospel message. Romans 3, 23, what does it say? For all, all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is in the exact same boat. So we need to understand that we're there. This is all of us. This is not some, but this is everyone. And then in our statement of faith, it says um, that while the image of God is still present within us, it's distorted, but that we inherit that sinful nature because of the sins of Adam and Eve. We inherit that not just when we're two or three years old and the first time we sin, but actually at the moment of conception. So David writes this in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Before, before we're even born, at the time of conception, we are already sinful because we inherit the sinful nature of our parents. Those who birthed us, they were not perfect, and so we are not perfect. And so that's why in our statement it says, with the exception of Jesus, and this is why it is essential that we hold to what Scripture teaches us, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit immaculately, that sin nature did not pass down from Joseph, that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived and brought forth Jesus who had no sin nature but was born perfect, the only one who was born perfect. All of the rest of us are in the other boat. Then we have this idea, we're sinners by, by nature and by choice. Again, I, I said this before, but Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't think we actually need to be convinced of this other than to actually spend some time in self-reflection and to look and consider our own hearts. And we can try and make all the excuses we want and we can, we can blame everybody. I'm, this, is, this is my MO as a kid. This is what I did. Is my brother would do something, right? And then I would respond in a way I shouldn't. One of my brothers. If you know them, I'll let you pick which one. Um, just kidding, if they're listening. Just kidding. I love you both. Uh, and my, I love my sister too. Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Uh, the point being, right, is my, one of my brothers would do something to me that, that, you know, I deemed not fair, right? And then I would do something bad back. And then what would I tell my parents? He made me do it. Anybody else? Is this just me? Okay, just me. So I'm the only one who said that. Okay, so I would say, he made me do it. And my mom, very graciously, right, but would look at me and tell me the truth. Nobody makes you do anything you choose to do it. Is I can blame the, the circumstances around me or the people that are in my life or the, or the decisions that were made that I had no control over and I can say that's all their fault but the reality is I have my own choices that I make and over and over and over I condemn my own self. My own self, that's redundant. I condemn myself because I make decisions where people can clearly see Greg cared more about Greg than anybody else in that moment. Yes, we're 
yes, we're born sinful, and so we have the sinful nature that's within us. But because of that nature, we find ourselves choosing over and over and over ourselves rather than what we know should be right and true. And again, marriage is a, is a, is a great example of this, is I love my wife more than I love anybody in the world. And yet so often, and maybe husbands are especially guilty of this, I'm not going to let wives off the hook here, but guys, you, you probably understand this more so, is when you get in an argument, you recognize you're wrong, and sometimes you just don't want to admit it, and so you fight the argument even though you know you're wrong, and you just kind of adapt and take a different approach or change what it was about. Well, that's, that's not really what I meant. This is what the issue is. And Guys, we're, we're bad at that. Maybe I'll just say it this way. I'm, I'm bad at that. Why is that? Well, that condemns me. That shows that I have sin nature, and that shows that despite what I know to be true and what I should be doing, I still give in to my own heart. In, in Romans 7, I talk about this chapter lots. In Romans 7, you see Paul kind of talk about this, this battle that goes on within. He says, I know what I want to do and what I should do, and, and that's what I want, and yet I find myself doing the opposite of that, and then I know what I shouldn't do, and, and yet that's so often what I end up doing. Paul acknowledged this battle that's within him. Why is there a battle there? Well, we talked about this a little bit with the spiritual side of things last week, but think of it from this context, is when you make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, when you confess that Jesus is who he claimed he was and you want to follow him, you are given the Holy Spirit. And that means now you have two natures at battle within you. You have the Holy Spirit who you have been given to equip you and to show you what is right and true and to lead you down those things but we still have this sin nature that chooses self so often. And so there's this fight that exists within our mind is will we do what we know is right or will we do what we want to do instead of what is right? The last sentence in our statement about this idea of being under God's condemnation it can be a difficult thing to hear, but the reality is, is that sin has consequences. Again, going back to Romans Road, Romans 6.23, the first bit of it says, for the wages of sin is death. This is the consequence of your sin, is that you will physically die, but there's also the spiritual death that happens. And, and again, we're going to find some resolution next week, and we're going to look at redemption. But the consequences of that sin are that we're going to die but Paul doesn't leave it there. The second half of, of that same verse, the first part says, for the wages of sin is death. But then he says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or he says it a little bit differently in Romans 8, verse 1. Excuse me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there is hope despite ourselves, despite how wicked and sinful our hearts are, and despite the fact that we abandon God and we choose ourselves, despite all of that, getting ahead of myself, can't wa- you just kind of want to preach the gospel, don't you? Right? Is There's hope because God did not just leave us and abandon us. But he sent Jesus to the cross that we might understand that we have a Savior the one who was perfect, the one who could sacrifice himself on the cross because he had no sin, he could become our mediator for us, our go-between. He could take the consequences of our sin and he and he alone could forgive us. Again, why is this all so important? Because if we believe that at the very heart of it, I'm good, 
we're just lying to ourselves and we know better. All you have to do is turn on the news. All you have to do is open your internet page and, and look at what's happening in the world right now and the vast amount of injustice. And, and right now, especially, we live in this exceedingly polarizing time in North America with all these things happening. And, and all, all I end up doing is I see and I read these articles and I just go, oh my goodness, like, Jesus, please come. It's crazy what's happening in the world. Why? Because those who don't know Jesus have nothing to battle that sinful nature. This is why it's so crucial and it's so important for us as Christians to share and to explain and to tell that hope that we have in Jesus. Because there's a sin problem and the problem is my own heart. It's not someone else's heart. It's not those people. It's not this group. It's me. It starts with me. It's every single one of us. We all are born with this sinful heart and we desperately need a Savior. Once we can accept that and once we read through Scripture, and again, we only got to you know, the end of Genesis 3, but the rest of, the rest of Scripture shows us over and over and over and over God saying, if you do this, like this will be good. This will have value to you. You'll find purpose here. And sometimes they do it for a little bit, but they always turn away. And there needs to be rebuke, and there needs to be correction, and then there's repentance. But then, thank the Lord, there's also grace. And God pulls us back towards himself. Is at the very heart of it, we all need to accept. We all need to admit. There's not one person in this world who is worse than me. Right? Paul said it this way to Timothy, I am the chief or I am the foremost of sinners. Is Once we understand that, everyone becomes a level playing field and we start to realize that God sent Jesus to the cross not just for me because somehow I was worthy. He sent Jesus to the cross so that sin might have an answer. So next week we're going to talk at length about why Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient to forgive our sin and, and what that means for us moving forward. So there's hope as we go forward. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. God, this is a difficult, a difficult uh, topic. We don't like to look in the mirror and see and evaluate what's, what's really happening in our hearts. But God, if we're honest with ourselves, as we know that we don't deserve anything, that there's no good found in us, but that the only thing that is good there comes from you in the first place. We have a sin problem and our heart is desperately wicked. And so God, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to the cross to be our hope, our salvation, our redemption. And as we look forward to that this next week, may we understand why it's so important that we view ourselves in a correct understanding, that we desperately need Jesus, that there is, as Scripture says, there's no one good, not even one. We all are in desperate need of you. So God, as we look forward to learning more about Jesus and redemption and what that means and how we can have salvation and and even as we move beyond that into what our purpose is now on the earth is, God, we are so excited for what you have done, 
for who you've created us and, and that you have that you haven't just left us, but that you're going to walk with us and you're going to equip us and you're going to mature us so that we can become more like you. God, we love you. Thank you for this morning now as we go back to our homes and, and begin kind of this long weekend of reminding ourselves of how thankful we are. There is, there is no greater thing to be thankful for than the cross. And so would you center our thoughts and our minds on that. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for your love. We love you. Amen.